I mean, there are so many people that are suffering from weird symptoms and other autoimmune diseases and whatnot. So, I mean, we're living in a time and place in, in the world where, um, yeah, taking your health for granted is not um, something one does easily. This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Pattison, helping you to live an easier, healthier and happier life. Welcome back to Rheumatoid Solutions, and we just take so much pleasure in sharing with you wonderful, inspiring stories where we listen to guests who are able to describe an improvement from where they've been in the past with inflammatory arthritis to where they are today, and often where they're looking forward to getting to in the future. Today, we've got another guest who's going to share her journey with us and also provide us with lots of useful and implementable tips that we can use to improve the um, ways in which we are going about our diet, exercise, mindset, and so on to continue to improve our health. Her name is Melissa. She's from Stockholm in Sweden, and she joins me now to uh, go through this and help us by explaining what she's been through, what she's managed to achieve, and uh, provide us with those tips that I mentioned. So g'day, Melissa. Hi, Clint. So nice to meet you. You too. You too. Now, you were diagnosed in 2016. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll hear about your story in just a moment, but I always like to get a quick before and after situation so we can gauge sort of just what sort of level of transformation you've been able to achieve. So um, I had a very aggressive onset. So I basically went from having my initial symptoms to a diagnosis within 10 weeks which is quite unusual. And when I was at my worst, um, couldn't lift my arms, could barely walk, could not walk down any stairs. My hands were very swollen. I had that awful feeling of having glass underneath my feet. And yeah, just general fatigue. And I had just also given birth to my son. So it's one of these classic um, postpartum onset. Um, autoimmunity issues. And today I'm sitting here five years later, and I never thought that I would be at this point on my healing journey where I'm down to almost being drug-free, as I mentioned to you in our earlier conversation. Um, I've been on Plaquenil for the past two years, and I'm down to eating one of those 200 milligram pills like once every 10 days or so. And I am in my best shape ever physically, which is so ironic. And it's due to kind of taking this holistic approach where not only am I looking over or how I've been looking over the food I've been eating, but um, it really is about, you know, how how am I looking after my body physically, uh, getting proper exercise, life, work, balance, all of that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's ironic that I'm sitting here five years later saying that I'm, I feel happier and healthier than I ever have. No. Congratulations. It's so wonderful to hear you say that. And 
you know, it must feel almost like the weight of the world has been lifted off your shoulders, given that what you've been through in the past with all of those, you know, awful inflammation points in your body and the prospect of where that could go to. And I'm sure that the doctors and anyone who jumps onto Google uh, reinforces the sort of severity of the diagnosis. We, we're going to talk about each of those bullet points that you mentioned. We'll talk about exercise today. We'll talk about diet. You've got some fabulous, really, really detailed level insights to share with regards to the diet, which I'm looking forward to. We're also going to talk about, you know, you mentioned work-life balance, and I want to hear about the effect of moving out of a more stressful sort of job into your new career and, uh, and how that made you feel. And just also, you're also helping people online. You've got an Instagram account in Sweden, and we'll we'll talk about that as well. So let's let's get started with uh, with how this unfolded. Walk us through 2016. You've 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 had your your baby, um, right. And you're trying to nurse, right? So as if life isn't challenging enough as a as a <laughs> mum, and then and then you're in agony. So yeah. I mean, talk me through those days. Mm-hmm. So I had just gone through a, a very easy pregnancy and a delivery of my son. Um, and I'm in the midst of, you know, three months in to having just become a mother and waking up um, every day with these new weird symptoms. As I mentioned in our earlier conversation, I'd had a little bit of a foot issue for the past eight years prior to 2016 a condition called uh, Morton's neuroma, uh, which is apparently quite common amongst people that are later diagnosed with RA. And this symptom kind of flared. So I remember, and it just flared and the pain kind of moved from being in my toes to my entire foot. So I was having pain, you know, like in the heels of my feet and, you know, under this kind of like, um, I've heard described previously really well as um, like walking on glass sensation. And then, so, and then this kind of, the inflammation just started spreading. So from my hands and my feet, it spread to my shoulders, it spread to my hips, it spread to my ankles, it spread to my knees. And suddenly I, I was just, you know, I, I wasn't able to wake up or I wasn't able to, to, to lift my son in the middle of the night when he needed nursing. So, you know, that was a very, very emotional point to be in, um, being a new mother and and not being able to care for my son. And I remember like the tiny little buttons on his little, you know, on his little, you know, body and whatever, when you, um, all of these things, uh, all, uh, all mobility just kind of, uh, dissipated within, within a few weeks. And so, um, healthcare in Sweden is really well, is really good. Um, and, I remember going to see my midwife and saying, I think there's something going on here. Um, I have a lot of inflammation in my body and a lot of pain. And first she put it down to the fact that I had just become a mother. Um, and it's not very uncommon to have sore and achy joints, uh, due to hormonal changes. Um, but then very shortly after that, they got me in with a rheumatologist and, it was quite easy to diagnose me because I had all the markers for a seropositive diagnosis. So I had all the antibodies, everything was positive. My CRP, my inflammation levels were not that elevated. However, I think it was like maybe four. I mean, it's definitely elevated, but it's not as bad as it could be. So that'd be four milligram per deciliter. 
I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, four milligram per litre is normal. Yet four significantly high if it were deciliter, which it sounds like it would be. Yeah. Um, friend of mine's in the Isle of Man and in uh, uh, as a, another European reference point, it's milligram per deciliter in the Isle of Man. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know if that gets us any closer to, to clarity. But um, but yes, uh, I suspect that's what it would have been. So anyway, continue. Yeah. And um, I mean, I just remember being, I, I was fairly certain I had RA because obviously I had consulted Dr. Google and been told that this is most likely what you're struggling with. So, I mean, but still it is such a heartbreaking moment when you're sitting there in the office at the rheumatologist. I remember I had my son and my husband with me as support and I'm grateful because I don't remember much that was being said. Uh, it was just, it was a shock. I should also mention, I have, I come from a family with a lot of autoimmunity. My mother, she's had MS since she was in her thirties and her brother, he has alopecia. So I've always been familiar, slightly familiar with the, I mean, obviously with my mother, but I've never understood the world of autoimmunity and how I think there's an expression about like genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger, which is obviously the case for me. I should also mention that as a child um, in Sweden, we have an, an expression for this, that we're an ear child, it's called. It's, it basically means that you're a child who suffer from chronic ear infections. And um, so there was a lot of treatment with antibiotics. So it really kind of like set the scene for what was to come. Mm, mm, mm. And I um, guess pregnancy me... just kind of triggered it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You've hit two of the three most common anecdotal stories that I hear prior to an onset of RA. The three most common stories I hear are antibiotics as a child or teenager, teenager for acne, which was me, child mm -hmm. as in ear infections for you or other complications. Um, mm -hmm. Secondly, having a diagnosis of Hashimoto's prior uh, that seems to increase risk factors for developing RA and onset straight after childbirth with the precipitous, I love that word, precipitous change in hormonal uh, readings. So you've hit two of them. You've had the sort of post-childbirth story and also the, the childhood antibiotic component as well. Um, mm -hmm. And you also, you know, you mentioned the Morton's neuroma. Uh, whilst that isn't an autoimmune disease, you know, you also had uh, something not quite right going on earlier with that, that's inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So, oh, these antibiotics, anything we can do to not use them if we're not putting anyone at risk, the better. <laughs> I've become one of these crazy holistic people who like whenever my son has an earache, I just like jam in a, a raw, a, you know, piece of garlic and olive oil in his ear and hope for the best. And it's worked every single time. Yeah. But But I'm just like terrified i mean i think that's also what happens when you're a parent and you get sick uh, with a chronic disease where you know there might be some kind of hereditary factor in play um the fear of passing on my genes it's it's real yeah, yeah. that fear well a couple of things to add there just out of interest is first of all i've just recently learned from uh, a microbiome researcher her name's jenya and she has a last name that I, I admit I cannot pronounce, and she's a uh, very, very, very 
high intellect researcher and the gut microbiome and stuff. And uh, I've got her appearing on my upcoming summit, which I haven't talked about, but it's about to be launched uh, for uh, within the next sort of six weeks. And when I spoke with her, she talked about how the gut microbiome is actually established fully by the age of three. Mm. So when we are three years old, it resembles very much what we look, what adult microbiomes look like. Uh, and so in those first few years, if we're getting antibiotics in those first few years of life, it really shapes what will become sort of their consistent microbiome from three onwards, um, mm. which I think is, uh, you know, it's quite fascinating. You know, you think of this child and it might be so different to us, but no, you know, the, those early antibiotics are, are crucial. And one of our you might know Katie, who often appears on our podcast. Uh, yeah, I follow def- her. <laughs> yeah, Katie, right? Um, yeah. She, um, you know, she's had rheumatoid since she was one, and she had lots of antibiotics through her first year of life. Uh, so, likewise, you know, we're just seeing this, this sort of uh, aha kind of thing going on with the antibiotics. So, whilst they can be life saving, yeah, use with caution, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another point I was going to make, and it's just slipped my mind at the moment. So, I'll hand the hand back over to you to continue with your really interesting story. All right. Thank you. So anyways, I've just been diagnosed yeah. and my doctor puts me on the standard treatment, which is in Sweden, at least 25 milligrams of metotrexate yes. uh, combined with what is it called? The sulfasalazine, plaquenil, um, cortisone, cortisone. So what they what my rheumatologist is that he put me on a first initially like a high dose of cortisone, a low dose of uh, metotrexate, and then he pulls down the cortisone as he increases the metotrexate. So you do that for a course of three months or something until you you're you're no longer relying on the cortisone. It worked well. Meanwhile, I'm just one of these people. I guess that's just how I am. That I had a hard time understanding why I had gotten sick. And I just felt like there had to be a better way of treating this illness. So while now being, you know, in treatment and responding well to the treatment, because I I have to say with metotrexate, I had the only side effect I ever had during those years was the fact that I was getting sick quite often. Hmm. So I I felt like my immune system was just not as strong as it should be. Um, bear in mind, I also had a, a young one. So of course the, the germs that he brings home from daycare are quite potent as well, <laughs> but, um, I'm, you know, trying to kind of read up on as many different treat holistic treatment options that, that there are, you know, so first I think I went down the, um, paleo track, the autoimmune paleo track as many do. I had been a vegetarian for many, many years. So that's also ironic because I considered myself being on like the optimal diet when I got sick, which, which was also so mind boggling. Then why, why, why me? I'm so healthy. I'm living, you know, the, the best lifestyle ever. And no, I was not. So I started, you know, dabbling with paleo and uh, the autoimmune paleo lifestyle. And it just didn't sit well with me. I'm sure that it might work really well for others. Uh, it didn't sit well with me for, for many different reasons, but don't let them get away with it that yeah. quickly. It, yeah. It, yeah. It, it can work for some people for a while. Yeah. That, that is the truth. Yes. But, but as we'll look at in a minute, um, once we get into sort of, you know, we want to talk about cheating onto a high fat yeah. you know, Western diet yeah. and stuff. 
and I want to share some studies around that. So, yes, yeah. so it, you're being very kind. Uh, and, yes, once we get rid of things like processed foods and we get rid of dairy products, um, a lot of people feel a lot better, and that's when they jump online and they write testimonials. Oh, my gosh, my pain's dropped by, like, 80% in a week. Yeah, it's mm. not because you're eating grass-fed beef. It's because you're no longer eating the worst foods possible for your digestive system. That's why. But you're only yeah. halfway there. You, exactly. you, you can take this a lot, lot further. So I just wanted to, you know, not let that diet become too sort of celebrated. It's a, yeah. it's a halfway point of improvement, but it's not the healthiest way forward. No. And then I also started kind of thinking about people that live long lives and what kind of diet they eat. And I was also thinking that, okay, looking maybe like at Japan as a population, and it just made sense, more sense to me from also a, yeah, ancestral point of view, like um, maybe less is more. What I'm trying to say is like, maybe the, the simpler the food, the better it is for us. And then, of course, what really changed everything around is when I found your fantastic TEDx um, talk. And that really, I mean, yeah, that was just such an eye-opener for me and just kind of like um, opened up a whole different you know, world. And I remember watching your podcast or your, yeah, your, um, your TED Talks and then finding all the different podcasts that you've made at that point, this was five years ago. And just like listening to them one after one after one, taking notes. And then I I got I I purchased your book and then I joined your community. And that really just changed everything for me. It it hasn't been, I mean, this has been a very long process for me. So it's taken me five years. And the food changing my diet was a big piece of the puzzle, probably the biggest piece of the puzzle. But I felt like my healing plateaued um, at around after about two years or so. And I just was not making enough progress. That's also when my metotrexate stopped working. So I was suddenly getting a lot more inflammation and my doctor agreed. He wanted to put me on um, biologics immediately, but he agreed that we try Plaquenil first. And that worked really, really well. And this is about two years ago. And this is also when I started making some really big life changes that we were on to earlier. Let's, um, let's talk, let's talk yeah. about the life changes in just a second when I just want to just mm -hmm. an observation that um, normally doctors won't even entertain going from methotrexate to Plaquenil because in terms of the hierarchy of effectiveness, if we speak in general terms, um, mm -hmm. methotrexate is normally a more effective and and powerful yeah. or more, uh, yeah, just more effective um, than mm -hmm. Plaquenil. Mm -hmm. So um, it's an interesting concession that your rheumatologist made to say, okay, instead of increasing the sort of a treatment approach into a biologic world, mm -hmm. let's let's go almost backwards into Plaquenil and that it actually worked really well for you. And I find that really, really interesting. It is interesting. And it's interesting what you're, what you're sharing, because I mean, from my perspective, I believe that yeah, Plaquenil must be like the, the milder or the, the most mild version of, of 
treatment uh, or option, uh, treatment option. But I think my rheumatologist, I mean, I, he's a, he's a lovely person, uh, but I think that he, he's kind of been waiting for, for the plaque wall not to work and to be able to put me in biologics because I mean, they feel a responsibility to, of course, give you the most aggressive kind of treatment to ensure that you live a, yeah, pain-free life. I don't want to say healthy, but a pain-free, as as pain-free as possible life. Mm. So, so yeah. So two years ago, uh, that is when I started the Plaquenil. That's also when I left my managerial role at a big corporation and started my own business together with a good friend of mine. And I remember people saying that that was a crazy idea to leave a safe job, safe employment. And, you know, that sounds really stressful. It sounds really risky. Are you sure you know what you're doing? And yes, of course, it's a big responsibility to run your own business. And it's a big leap of faith, but it's also given me so much more control over my life. And... (laughs) I, I honestly feel it's like one of the best decisions I've ever done. It's, it's really um, increased the quality of my life. How quickly did you notice improvements to your health after you left the corporate job? Like maybe six months in, I started noticing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then the wonderful thing about that is that I, the, the woman who I started, uh, we have this little yeah agency together. Um, the woman who I started this agency together with, she was really, really into Pilates. She's been doing Pilates for about 15 years. And here in Sweden, when we talk about Pilates, I imagine like, you know, this like big Pilates ball that everybody talks about and like really gentle exercise. And she, I remember her saying, no, Melissa, that's not at all what it's like. If you go to a proper Pilates studio with a, you know, trained professional Pilates instructor, they will whip you into shape in a, in a, yeah, fearful way. So now we go to Pilates together (laughs) three times a week and it has completely changed my body. (laughs) And I've gone from being, you know, I've always been like a petite person. Um, but now I have like strength and muscle and Pilates I find is the optimal exercise for me because I did a lot of Bikram yoga, um, following your recommendation, but I find that it takes, it's, it's a big investment in terms of time. And I'm afraid I don't have that time. So Pilates is for me, it's like 55 minutes of of really good strengthening and stretching exercise, um, focusing a lot on the core. And if you find a good studio with a good instructor, it's, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I've only heard good things about it. Um, one yeah. of, uh, you might recall Ellen, who's the administrator inside our support forum. Uh, she does Pilates and she mixes that up with some Bikram on alternate days. And she said the Pilates has helped her build muscle, get stronger. Um mm-hmm. Again, we mentioned Katie. I think she might have done a little bit of of Pilates. It doesn't come up as much as what I really, you know, thought that it would. And um, I don't know why that is. Uh, I think um, there's no reason why it shouldn't be embraced with much more enthusiasm, certainly to give it a go. I love the concept of building the core and, you know, plank. I was just doing planks myself upstairs uh, before we began this conversation. I do planks every night and my little three-year-old sits on my back. Um, so 
you know, it's, um, yeah, anything that builds the core and builds strength and, and increases flexibility. I mean, this is, this is sensational stuff. So, you know, did you have to make any modifications, um, certainly in the earlier stages for any joints that were hurting, things that you had to sit out or avoid? Um, sometimes I could get like a sore, um, wrist. Um, but I mean, it's as time has gone on, I mean, I've been doing that. I've been taking classes three times a week for the past two years. Um, they were able to maintain being open during COVID. Um, Sweden has had a very different approach to that. Um, and what's, what's happened is also like the chronic foot pain that I've had for the past, you know, 10 plus years has gone away because being part of Pilates, I mean, it, it literally, you know, you train every single joint of your entire body, mm. including your feet. Yeah. They I, have, want to com- I want to comment yeah. on this. This is just something really interesting that I've noticed is mm-hmm. that, um, you know, keep in mind I've 15 years of rheumatoid right and was out of control for the first three or four years, you know, major surgery within, within the first four years of diagnosis left knee completely destroyed by that time, had no cartilage left. So, you know, my inflammation was completely uncontrolled and raging for years and a lot of damage was done. My feet were affected during that time as well, you know, very, very hard to walk around. So there's a lot of damage in my feet. But I find that, you know, I'm walking around barefoot a lot recently, but what I've found, and we're just talking about these planks, is that the feet feel fantastic when I consistently get into a plank position barefoot and mm. my toes my toes are therefore really bent upwards back mm. towards the the top mm. of the foot because the toes are taking all of the body weight of the lower the, the legs and the lower body and obviously the front part of the body is underneath your your elbows um, but find that you know that 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 actually makes my feet feel fantastic mm-hmm. when you do it consistently. I wonder if that's also been it's like a really deep stretch into the toes. Yeah. I wonder if that's also helped your feet. I think it has helped my feet a lot and I think another thing you mentioned it now you were working walking a lot of bare feet at home. So oh. I was initially when I got sick my my doctors told me that it's good to walk, you know, always wear Birkenstocks inside or whatever. But I I, I actually want to challenge that because I feel that you you need to constantly work the muscles in your little toes and in your feet. And by walking in, you know, super ergonomic, you know, sneakers or Birkenstocks, whatever, you you give your feet a break from that. So I, I actually think that it might be contradicting what you should be doing. I do too. My recommendations yeah. on this at the moment, and I'm still, I'm still sort of still holding steady to this, is that if your feet are inflamed, you mm-hmm. shouldn't walk on hard surfaces barefoot, right? Mm-hmm. However, and this is a real subtlety, and the, the line here is very fine, mm-hmm. you should therapeutically walk barefoot on soft sand on a beach mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. So you get zero impact through the foot. Mm. Um, but you do get that flexibility and the toes, all those little uh, joints in the feet. Everything mm. does get a big range of motion movement mm. without the impact. Mm. And so my ex- my experiments on this over the years have made me, certainly for my, uh, for my feet, find that barefoot walking on soft sand is 
brilliant, actually therapeutic and beneficial. But mm. if your feet are tender, uh, stay off the cold, hard concrete um, or tiles. Um, but but gee, my feet have felt great ever since I've been doing these these mm. evening planks with my boy, and it's just you know I've just really concluded that that's been one of the best things for my for my feet in a very long time. Mm. Mm. Ties in with your planking, I really think yeah. it's yeah. I mean, with your with Pilates, yeah, plank. yeah, planking is part of yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you do the class barefoot, or you've got shoes on, don't you? Uh, no, you have um, these. Um, you're barefoot with um, these little socks that have kind of like a sticky surface on the bottom. Right. So, yeah. So it's very possible that what we're talking about applies because the oh, shoes, pre- the shoes prevent that really deep bend into the toes that we're talking about. I must say it was, it, it kind of, it's a bit, uh, when I first started doing this some months ago, if one side of the foot especially doesn't move as much as the other, it can hurt a little when you come your body weight into those toes, but mm-hmm. persevere with it. If you're listening and curious, um, I've found it, I've found it great. So Pilates, diet, changing your job, these things all coming together. When did you start moving your Plaquenil from, two, what, 400 milligram a day to 200 milligram spread out to nearly 10 days apart? I mean, how did that happen? I think it started about a year ago when I started spreading it out because I was just in a absolutely completely pain-free place. So I just started tapering it. And then I kind of got to a point in the beginning of summer, in May, I believe, in spring, uh, where I started, you know, having a plan for it. So that's when I started spreading out to taking one tablet, 200 milligrams every seven days. And now I'm taking one of those, I think, every 10 days or so, approximately. Have you noticed anything at all in the change? No. 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 Yeah. So that's the strength. I, I, uh, this, this is also why I, I, I'm so happy to be speaking with you because I feel like I, my husband and I were having a conversation about this just last night. And, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm relying on it more emotionally than I am actually in terms of, is it preventing inflammation from happening? I, I don't know. I like these honest. discussions. This is right into the sort of like, Right into my uh, my my zone as to the sort of stuff that I like talking about, which is yeah. looking at the the fors and against of certain decisions and which strategy is going to ultimately satisfy your your feeling for safety, also satisfying the relationship with your rheumatologist, also satisfying um, the need for us to have as low as inflammation as possible at all times, mm-hmm. um, managing side effects and all that sort of stuff. Um, and of course, I don't pretend even in my wildest dreams to to act as a rheumatologist, and nor would I ever want to have yeah. that sit that role. I find the the conundrums very interesting, mm. and um, and what I can say is just sticking to the sticking to the obvious, you know, commonsensical response is that if you're on a daily tablet, right, it's meant to be taken daily for its effectiveness, yeah. and you're taking it every seven to ten days. Then, mm-hmm. if you were to average that out over an equivalent daily dose, you're on, you know, arguably an insignificant or a non-therapeutic dose of that drug. Mm-hmm. It also takes two to three months 
commonly for that drug to actually work. So you've got a drug that's very slow moving. You're taking it very, very infrequently at a very low dose. And um, uh, before we hit record here, I think you said you haven't passed this on to your doctor yet, but he's probably going to look at the situation and say, well, how is that doing anything? Right. I think, you- I think the answer is pretty clear. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm just, I, as I said, I mean, I'm just kind of waiting. I've just been waiting for the other shoe to drop, basically, since since summer, and and now we're coming to the end of September. So I've been doing this since May, being being down to yeah, one of these tablets every seven to, to ten days, waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's not dropping. What might happen is that right before I get my period, there might be a little bit of swelling in a knuckle or something, but I expect that. And I can, I mean, that's like a small price to pay, right? Hmm. I mean, my fear is that it, you know, the the disease comes roaring back. I want to go back on Plaquenil and then suddenly it's not going to be working anymore because I've developed antibodies and there, you know, my doctor's going to want to put me on the, on the heavy stuff. So I, that's where I am. It's a fair concern, and yeah. I've never heard anyone speak of developing antibodies to Plaquenil. So okay. this, is, this is where a rheumatologist is going to give you some really good insight. So ask yeah. your doc, ask your doctor, and say, "Hey, is is what I, is what I'm doing associated with antibody development, or am I taking a risk of some other thing happening that I'm completely unaware of?" Um, and see what he says, knowing that the pre-frame of entering the conversation is that his responsibility to represent the you know rheumatology you know agreement almost is to be very very aggressive with medicine intervention to avoid joint damage. So mm-hmm. he is likely to say he is likely to. Uh, well, actually, you know, I, I don't know. I've not been in this situation before. It's an unusual combination of drug and dose. I've not heard of it before. So let me <laughs> let me know what he says. Um, I'll let you know. Yeah. Well, congratulations on all that. I mean, you've done so well. You're in a position where, uh, like so many females, you get a little bit of inflammation right before your monthly cycle. This is common. We hear of it all the time inside our support forum. It's almost like, um, well, you're just going to roll, roll with the punches and then you know that it's going to pass. And we don't do any food testing and, and, and so forth at that time because it's, it's influenced by that moment in, in the 30 days. And therefore, um, you're getting you know, false negatives and false positives and so on. So other than that, I mean, you're crushing it. You're going so well. It's mm-hmm. just brilliant. Um, let's talk about some of the, um, the tips that you've got for people. Um, mm-hmm. Let's just bullet point some of the strategies that you feel that are maybe less obvious Mm -hmm. Uh, for people if they're following the program already. Um, Mm -hmm. If people are wondering, what is this program? We haven't mentioned it. It's the Patterson (laughs) program for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, So let's talk about uh, some of these um, nuances that you've applied to it. Yeah. All right. So, um, I mean, the the program has been such a lifesaver, Clint. And uh, yeah, I have have some notes here on the side, so I might be looking down to just make sure that I'm catching everything. But I think, I mean, RA for me is very much about digestion um, and to ensure that I'm doing everything to support my body to, to, so to help it digest whatever I'm eating in the best 
way possible. So when it comes to um, the diet that is prescribed in the program, which is obviously um, heavy on um, the um, buckwheat and quinoa, for instance, um, I always make sure to to uh, soak everything for a really long time. Uh, I'm not talking two hours. I usually soak it overnight. So I soak the quinoa and the buckwheat always overnight, especially with the buckwheat. I think it's common. Yeah, I think everybody knows or most people know this, that you need to first rinse it with hot water. At least that's what I've been told. At least that's what I've read. That you, you, you boil, you're, you're meant to, this is what I've been told. You're meant to boil water and rinse that um, and rinse the buckwheat uh, and boiling water um, so that it releases this kind of pink uh, color. It has that pink color. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you want to get rid of that as much as possible. And then after I do that, I soak it in cold water and rinse it a few times before boiling it. So I always do that. I always soak it, first rinse it in boiling water and then soak it in cold water, rinse it a few times. I always soak my quinoa. And when it comes to quinoa, I always prefer the white quinoa because I believe that is easier to digest than the, the red or the black, even though the red and the black potentially might have more nutrients in it but I believe it, it's more difficult to digest for me, at least when it comes to beans and lentils, which, uh, I also rely on. I always soak it together with baking soda. Also a trick that I learned, uh, it breaks down the enzymes that potentially can irritate the gut lining. So that's also a trick, a tip that I would like to share that helped me immensely. I also okay. soak, you know, over the night beans as long as possible. Uh, sometimes I even soak the beans so long that they start sprouting, which is even better. Yeah. Um, just just to get the clarity on that. So, do you put? Uh, let's say you rinse you rinse the beans, which of course are hard, very very hard. Uh, if I'm <laughs> thinking of black beans in my mind as I'm talking, um, you've rinsed them thoroughly, and then you've actually added how much baking soda do you add? before you then leave them to soak? Uh, I would probably, for 500 grams of dried black beans, um, mm-hmm. I would probably use um, a tablespoon of baking soda. Right, okay. Roughly, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, and right. then I let that, yeah, and then I let that soak for, say, eight to 12 hours. Yeah. And then I soak it a few, rinse and soak a few more times because I want to make sure that it doesn't, Re and I don't know if this is even possible. It's just my general fear of yeah messing things up. So I don't want the beans to reabsorb um, the liquid. So that's why it's also important to uh, re-rinse and re-soak them a few times afterwards. But then I don't normally add more baking soda. So I I do that initially, and yeah. then just kind of rinse a few times. I yeah. would say that Melissa, my wife, um, mm-hmm. does uh, the exact same process. Mm-hmm. Um, soaks the beans overnight, rinses them thoroughly just without mm-hmm. the baking soda. So, yeah. you know, this is how we should, you know, people are worried about lectins, right? This thing, lectin, mm-hmm. lectins come up. Um, and every time I hear a, um, a plant-based medical doctor answer the question, it's always along the same lines, which are lectins are harmless as long as if you soak the, the foods mm-hmm. that contain the lectins. And Lectins can, you know, basically completely be disarmed and become irrelevant once we prepare a food in the way that you have to to actually eat it, because you can't actually eat raw 
things. You just can't. They're too hard. They're not, it's not physically possible. So you're worrying about uh, something that can be only negative for you by eating in a way that's impossible for you. So hmm. the, le- the lectin situation uh, is kind of a mute point, but it does come up from, you know, we talked about earlier about like the AIP uh, camps and stuff like that as one of the sort of uh, potentially ah, gotcha kind of ideas, but, um, but it's, not really, um, it's not really much of an argument. Can you continue? These are fabulous little insights. So then um, also to support my digestion, I started incorporating a lot of um, digestive enzymes. I know that's also something that you recommend a lot on the forum. That also really has helped the process, um, my healing process. Taken okay. Yeah. So proteolytic enzymes or broad spectrum enzymes? Broad spectrum. Oh, yeah. really? Cellulose sure. include? Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I believe they are. And I've been mixing that a little, trying, you know, uh, depending on what I can get a hold of, basically. Yeah. But some type of digestive enzyme to kind of support the, the digestive process. That has this, was, this was something I did for years. I must have spent... Yeah. I hate to Look, enzymes <laughs> also aren't that expensive. They're not too no. bad. But I... I used to take amounts that would, you know, make people double, like, what the heck mm-hmm. is that guy doing? You know, mm-hmm. sometimes like six, seven capsules at a meal, thinking mm-hmm. that, um, you know, maybe my whole digestive system's just not working. And so I basically have to, you know, replicate my own body <laughs> with supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's one of these things that you never know if it's doing anything, but I believe in it as a concept. And so now mm-hmm. I took, so many. So that's interesting that you've found it helpful too. It's uh-huh, real, helpful. Yeah. Good. Thank you. And then, I mean, um, I also, of course, yeah, I can go through this, um, you know, supplements. It's, it's the classic, you know, D vitamins, like a vegan multivitamin, B12, whatnot. You know, making sure that I'm getting plenty of omega 3s. Um, I get mine through. What are they called? The, the the little seeds, not the yeah, chia seeds, but also the other flaxseed, flax flax uh, yeah. which I put in my uh, daily smoothie. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one big, I don't want to say tool, but one big mindset that has helped me, um, and this was also this is also a process is letting go of fear of, of like messing things up. Because I think initially when I started your program and when I was sick, I was very, very afraid of, you know, accidentally eating oils or accidentally have, you know, accidentally messing things up, thinking that it would put me back to, you know, starting all over again. And that created a lot of stress for me. Um, so I think, and I know that this is really difficult um, and it's taken me a long time to get there, but just trying to have a relaxed or maybe not relaxed, but having faith in the process and knowing that one is doing as, as well as one can and doing everything in, in its power to kind of having this clear goal, um, but not being so hard on yourself. If mm-hmm. things go, I don't want to say wrong, but if, you know, life happens as well. I mean, this is also one of the things is like, we as human beings, we have, you know, we have a set plan, we have a set goal. And, and, and my goal was obviously to get, you know, my goal was to be 
healthy and free of medication, but I wasn't kind of realizing that that's not always um, the path to get to getting there is not going to be straight. And I mean, with everything that we, the whole world has gone through now with COVID and everything, I mean, I think it has been a very humbling experience and being, being diagnosed with RA at the age of 34, having just become a mother, that's a very humbling experience. And um, yeah, it's been difficult to navigate, but I, I have a lot of faith in that process these days. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm searching for the sort of appropriate metaphor. The one that comes to mind just off the top of my head is like um, when we each get diagnosed, we can, we can follow, you know, a plan that's been put together for, you know, I guess the best guidelines that we can follow against what is a tremendously difficult opponent. And those guidelines can be like a coach. So the coach is there to, to follow and to tell you the, I guess the, um, the theory behind it all. But the first day you get diagnosed, you're actually in a professional boxing match and you've Mm -hmm. got the guidelines from your coach, but you take punch after punch after punch because you really don't know how to sort of uh, make it your own Mm -hmm. and, and, and how to flow with the experience rather than just reading it and taking it in intellectually. And um, we don't know if we should be, throwing the punches or against the ropes and stopping the punches, or we should be saving our energy or going out and attack, you know, this metaphor has got its limitations, but basically like it's a boxing match from day one and Mm. you're going to get hit a lot and you're going to eventually work out your own style Mm. with your, the way that you approach it. And it is different for everyone. And so yeah, that's it's it's so individualized and yet also sort of there's so many consistencies amongst us all. So yeah, yeah. that's how I felt when you were explaining your your uh, experience as well. But that's also a really nice segue into another thing that I'd like to mention, and that is the power of support. And I mean, being part of your community was such you know so fantastic in every single way. And whenever I had a query, you would respond, you know, swiftly within just a few hours, minutes sometimes, and, or somebody else would, I mean, that support, knowing that you're not alone, knowing that there are so many other people that have gone through it, are going through it. it it's a beautiful thing. And thank you so much for that. Mm, thank yeah. you. Yeah. It's certainly one of the most uh, sort of proudest things that I've put together and the content that's in there now is just off the charts. I mean, it's virtually like an encyclopedia of rheumatoid arthritis reversal. It's just unbelievable. So it's a shame that, you know, well, it's so much of it is obviously personal stories and it's a confidential place. Um, Mm -hmm. But if there was a way of uh, making it sort of with withholding people's privacy information and being able to to share it broadly, there'd be there's such value in there, but we 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 get the value out in other ways that uh, enable the community to remain private, and uh, and we can still share the information uh, out through conversations like what we're having now. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, people are learning a lot from having you know our our chat today. Is there anything else that is on your list that you'd like to add? Um, 
No, I mean, one thing that I did that was interesting, and I mean, I can recommend is just that it is quite costly, which is why I always kind of, uh, you know, was it necessary? Maybe not. I did it. Um, I had my... I had my poo tested, I guess, that I, I, I tested, um, to make sure, yeah, exactly. Um, to make sure that I had the proper kind of microbiome balance, whatnot. And turns out I had absolutely zero lactobacillus bacteria in my gut. Hmm. Um, not a huge surprise, but, uh, interesting. And I was recommended a, a treatment for that, that I, yeah. They don't hide. It's a Swedish brand uh, of like hardcore probiotics. And um, I did that. And I think that might have helped quite a bit too, to be honest. Yeah. I'm going through a phase at the moment, which is to recommend very high doses of lactobacillus and bifidobacterial range. Because, you know, ultimately, if we think about trying to heal leaky gut, there's so many different approaches to it. You know, do you step back and try and eat infrequently and allow long periods of time, almost like mini fasting or intermittent fasting? Yeah. Right? I fast. Yeah. You, and you do fast. Okay. So, mm -hmm. you know, you've got that angle. And then you've got the angle of, of supplementation, things like quercetin and L glutamine and all of these other amino acids and various uh, supplements that you can take, which all, by the way, have got some reasonable scientific evidence behind their effectiveness at helping improving tight junction integrity and mucosal formation and, and so on and so on. But what comes up consistently and really reassuringly is that our, our healthy species of microbes, specifically lactobacillus and the bifidobacteria range of bacteria, their mm -hmm. subspecies included because they each mm -hmm. have a multiple number of subspecies below just within that genre of bacteria mm -hmm. just in their in their natural state of being in the mucus of your gut exude a substance which heals the gut wall it's in its best interest sort of mm -hmm. survival point of view for that bacteria to be able to uh, continue to make the environment in which it lives sustain itself. And so mm -hmm. the bacteria enable the gut to be healthy through excreting a substance that keeps the tight junctions in place and uh, mm -hmm. feeds the cells in that epithelium. And consequently, they themselves have a, a safe and consistent place to live. And so my feeling is that if there was one single thing, like the takeaway, the takeaway and you're only if Put it this way, if I was only allowed to do one thing and mm -hmm. it was fast or quercetin or L-glutamine or all these other things, slippery elm, all this stuff, mm -hmm. or take high-dose probiotics of lactobacillus and, and bifidobacteria, I would opt for the probiotics above all of the options on hand to, to heal leaky gut. Now, that assumes if you're eating consistently in each of those categories of experiment. It's, I think the bacteria are the most influential out of the groups of options that we have. Mm -hmm. That's my, my yeah. feeling at the moment based on the science. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So, you know, look, you know what else is really interesting is I've had a number of people do microbiome samples and give me their results. And mm -hmm. I've also, I also have had one microbiome sample done and all of us 
are low on lactobacillus. Mm, it is interesting. You know, and, and when I try and see this in the studies as well, uh, it also shows up that, that it's less common than what we expect as well. Mm. And so I'd like to, you know, ask an expert on this, but, um, but, you know, I don't think it's terribly inconsistent of you to have low lactobacillus. And I don't think it's plant-based diet cause. I just think, I just think it's, there's something else to this. There's something mm. else there, and I'm not quite understand what that is, mm-hmm. but um, but I'm glad you supplemented, and I'm glad that you think that it that it may have helped. It may have helped, but you know, at least uh, it's it's one of those things where like you, you get a result, and then you do something proactively to to prevent it from you know from happening again, or you know, it's there's so much psychology to to this process as well, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is. You build yeah. confidence in certain yeah. approaches. And even if you don't know whether or not it's that that's helping or not, the confidence mm. that you get by thinking that it's that actually mm. helps you heal because you feel like you're getting better and you mm. feel like you've got confidence in your therapy. And mm. that itself probably does just as much as any of the things that you're doing. Mm. For sure. It's, it's a mind game. There's no doubt about <laughs> it. We've had a long conversation. Uh, we had a couple of other things to talk about. Uh, one was uh, cheating and then the, and you helping people. The cheating thing I want to sort of go over a little um, briefly. You know, we talked prior to this conversation and you were really honest with me and you said, look, sometimes I'm able to go out and I can have a meal at a restaurant and it's not as strict as what I do week to week. Uh, there's a little bit of oil. Sometimes I eat off the program just a little bit and I don't have any consequences. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, I just, with regards to that, you know, I think that it just goes to show how far you've come and that mm-hmm. you aren't on the edge of health. You have mm-hmm. some buffer there. But I just wanted to share a study in anticipation for, for that section of our uh, conversation just to warn people, and I'll, I'll do a full podcast mm-hmm. on this episode, but I'll just share my screen. You should be able to see that on the screen now. If anyone wants to navigate on the internet through to this journal, you can Google the title, which is Negative Effects of a High-Fat Diet on Intestinal Permeability, a Review. And this is a review paper. So what these do is, is someone sits down and spends weeks just looking at every single paper related to this particular topic, and then they compile a summary of all of the information they could find, put it together in tables and say, on this study, it says this, this study says this, and so on and so on. These are really helpful because it saves us being sort of caught up on a single study, which might be biased, or it might be of a small sample size, or it might be done on rodents. And anyway, so these are really effective. This was from 2019. And what I love about this particular study is that it, basically lists uh, approximately nine reasons why a high-fat diet is, is, is awful for creating more intestinal permeability. Um, I did highlight some of this, and then I restarted my computer, so I don't know whether or not my highlights are going to show up. Let's have a look. If not, I'm just going to read from the conclusions here. So uh, we've got... Um, one aspect of the conclusion is or take-home message, as they put it colloquially, 
This review should bring greater awareness of the impacts of diet on intestinal physiology and how this may contribute to the etiology of diseases in addition to potentially providing an alternative supplement to treating existing GI pathologies. That wasn't the sentence I needed. Um, Let me see. Um, uh, Here we go. This is the sentence I wanted. I apologize for the pause. Uh, Here we discuss how dietary fats disrupt every aspect of the intestinal barrier symptoms and how this, sorry, intestinal barrier system and how this may manifest clinically. And what they do is I scroll back up here. They have subheadings throughout and each subheading is a different way in which the dietary fats associated with a high fat diet negatively impacts all aspects of a healthy gut environment. One of my favorite topics, oxidative stress, we just scrolled over mucus, uh, disrupts the uh, intestinal epithelial epithelial shedding, proliferate axis, some things I can't even pronounce, but um, it makes for uh, very compelling evidence, lipopolysaturides. Anyway, so if anyone wants to go through and check out that study, it's hard to think that it's a good idea to cheat often. If we can get away with it from time to time, good, but just be careful. I always come back to the life of Pi. You know, mm-hmm. we're living with this wild animal and it's taken you, what, Melissa, five years to get to mm-hmm. where you are today. Uh, it can be undone by mm-hmm. stirring up that, that wild animal and it comes back ferocious like it was born to as a wild animal and wants to tear you apart and can take a very long time to get it back under control again. So we, if we're going to poke the lion, just poke it a tiny little bit. Don't go poking it with a huge stick too often because it'll be like, you know what, I'm sick of being tame. I want to, I want to go crazy again. So thanks for letting me uh, go off to my little rant there. I like my studies. Um, so thanks, right. Melissa. I really, really appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing your story and inspiring us all and showing us what's possible. You know, it's like the four-minute mile, right? The first time that Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, no one thought that that was possible. They felt that it was impossible, right? And for us as a rheumatoid arthritis community, well, for me, when I read Dr. McDougall saying that he had patients who he had been able to get off his medications and get rid of their joint pain um, back in 2000 and probably it was 2007, I read one of his books and he said that, and then I found online he'd had some testimonials. That for me was the four minute mile. I mm-hmm. thought someone, someone has actually gotten improvements against this disease. And I thought if they can do it, I can do it. And then, you know, now so many years later, here we are having the conversation and you're telling me that you've done the four minute mile. And it just makes me very, very happy. And it's very inspiring. And, you know, after these conversations, I always go and talk to my Melissa and tell her about how uh, another person, this time a, um, a lovely woman in, in, in Stockholm on the other side of the world, is, is having a better life. And it's just so good to hear. Thank you so much for all your wonderful work, Glenn. Yeah, I wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't for you. Well, thank you, Melissa. And thank you for implementing it. You know, it's uh, the implementation and coming back to our boxing metaphor, it's making it your own and on all those modifications that you've made to make it work for you, leaving your job and starting your own entrepreneurial efforts. 
all these things were needed to make yeah. it work. So you certainly have, have worked a lot of things out. So well done. Uh, you've got a group of people that you connect with during normal non-COVID times. Tell us about that. Yeah. So obviously um, living this way, having this lifestyle is something that people take notice of. And um, a lot of my friends started asking me, why don't you start an Instagram account where you can kind of share your journey and inspire others? Um, so I did. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, the account is called Healing Yum Yum. It's not a lot of people, but a lot of Swedish people follow me. And it's like a community, basically, where we can connect and sometimes even meet up in person uh, once there's, yeah, COVID situation is different. And for me, it's been tremendously wonderful. I mean, this is how I've met a lot of fantastic people that we can, you know, find support in each other and inspire each other along the way. And not just RA, obviously. I mean, there are so many people that are suffering from weird symptoms and other autoimmune diseases and whatnot. So, I mean, we're living in a time and place in, in the world where, um, yeah, taking your health for granted is not... Um, something one does easily. Uh, exactly. So we should head over and I'll follow you as well over at Healing Yum Yum over yep. on Instagram. Yep. We'll do. Okay. Well, we can keep in touch uh, there. And uh, I look forward to, you know, seeing some updates and seeing some pictures and maybe a, a shot of you sweating after Pilates. Who yeah. knows what we're going to see? Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks once again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Clint. Take care. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.